A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's time to take stock, ladies and gentlemen. Just a few short weeks ago, the government was being asked a series of questions about the rising death rates in care homes, the numbers of people that were becoming infected with coronavirus, and what the plan was to lift the country out of its economic gloom. Today, the questions are all about why schools can't be open, whether we should reduce the social distancing measure from two metres down to one, uh, when we can all get a haircut, whether we should be planning holidays, why on earth pubs can't be open, and why on earth you're not allowed any longer to watch Gone with the Wind, for heaven's sake? Feels good, doesn't it? Despite the relentless attempts by the mainstream media to find fault in absolutely everything that the country does, and we are now more concerned with the removal of statues than we are with the removal of a deadly disease. Let's just take a step back and wonder how we got here. Yesterday, Sadiq Khan gloated about the removal of a statue of Robert Milligan, a trader and slave owner from the 18th century who founded docks at West India Quay in London's East End. Apparently, Tower Hamlets Council, which has been Labour-controlled pretty much all the way through since the 60s, suddenly found the statue offensive. Bit strange, that isn't it? Also, Little Britain has been cancelled. You can't watch that anymore on iPlayer. Uh, you can't see Gone with the Wind anymore. I wonder what else they're going to tell us that we can't see. How about the outlaw Josie Wales, uh, which is, of course, a very, very good cowboy film uh, that was made back in the 70s. Meanwhile, in Leeds, a statue of Queen Victoria was daubed with the words murderer and covered with paint. And a letter sent by a few students to the University of Liverpool has resulted in the renaming of one of their halls of residence from Gladstone to something else more appropriate. Presumably Shankly or something, right? Thanks to his supposed views on slavery. So the Black Lives Matter campaign has gone from complaining about police brutality to moving a few statues around, banning a few films and changing the names of things. Brilliant, isn't it? What on earth is going on? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be talking to TV historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver about the importance of history and why it shouldn't be airbrushed to avoid offending people. There was a great guest this morning uh, on Julie Hartley Brewer's show who said this is really the equivalent of ripping pages out of a history book so that you're not allowed to read anything about what happened during a certain period of time. Talk about year zero. Talk about Stalinism. Talk about, you know, the return of the Communist Party and the return of Orwellian politics. What on earth have we allowed to happen? We should have seen this coming, of course. I blame myself. I blame all of you. I blame everyone who was reasonable enough to allow these left-wing people to get into charge of all sorts of universities, get into charge of all of our schools, 
tell people the stuff that they are now preaching back to us, which is entirely and utterly nonsensical. We'll be talking to George Pascoe Watson as well. He's going to preview Prime Minister's questions for us, uh, which we will bring you live at midday. As ever, we want to hear from you, your hopes, your fears, and everything that you're seeing and hearing out there on the front line. 0344 499 1000. This is, of course talk a radio and a very good morning to you because as I stare out into the doom and gloom uh, of the skyline of London I'm wondering where we will be by Saturday where we will be by Sunday will there be more statues removed I mean I'm sorry if you find it offensive to walk past a piece of stone I think you really might want to re-examine your life if you find part of the history of this country rather embarrassing then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But you might as well not try and rewrite history and get rid of that particular thing that you find offensive. I put out a tweet last night after seeing some tweets on on Twitter from people saying, do you know, the great thing about Germany is that they have learned from their terrible past and they don't put up statues uh, to their people uh, whom other people might find offensive. Well, I'm sorry, I refuse to be compared as a nation to Nazi Germany. We did not do what Nazi Germany did. I then put out a tweet in which I said that I was very proud of this great country of ours uh, and that I was very proud of everything that Britain stands for. I was then asked by a senior writer on The Times to uh, explain whether I was proud of the Amritsar massacre, to which I said, well, no, you don't have to be proud of absolutely everything that we have done as a nation, but you can still be proud of the nation. It's a bit like having a child and you're very proud of that child. Sometimes that child may do things which do not make you proud, but it does not stop you being proud of the child. Do you see what I'm saying? 0344 499 1000. Let's get this on the road. Let's get this show on the road. Let's get some common sense back into this nation of ours, because quite frankly, it would appear to me at the moment that Britain has gone stark staring bonkers mad. And if you think I'm wrong, have a look at the front pages this morning. This statue that was taken away from West India Quay of Robert Milligan, right? It was done at the behest of one councillor, from Tower Hamlets Council, who apparently wasn't offended by it a week ago, but was offended by it yesterday. So much so that he demanded its removal. Well, I'm sorry. I don't see why he should have that kind of power. We elected him uh, as a councillor to run Tower Hamlets Council and to look after the good people of Tower Hamlets, which, by the way, has a very, very tiny, tiny majority minority uh, of black people living in it. It has by far and away a much bigger proportion of Bangladeshis. 32% of the people that live in Tower Hamlets are Bangladeshis. Do you think they care about Robert Milligan? I very much doubt it. Let's talk to George Pascoe Watson and get some common sense on the loan. Uh, George, very good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Well, I mean, I mean, aside from the fact that we collectively seem to have gone completely stark, staring, crazy, bonkers, mad. How are you? Well, I'm fine, but uh, the the concern I have, of course, is it's a wider issue. There, Mike, is uh, I've no problem about a debate around statues. I've no problem about a debate around uh, you know Britain's history and, and all that goes with it. And in fact, that's very healthy. What I do have a problem with is the sense that the mob can demand and that uh, the rule of law appears uh, to be thrown out the window. And the, the sense of structure and process seems to have been abandoned. Um, and I'm, I've got to say uh, that the Metropolitan Police on this particular issue and the police around the country appear to be taking the political decision uh, that it's that they that they can choose to allow mobs uh, to behave in, in this particular way, and and I think that uh, lots of our listeners this morning will be hopefully in the same place, which is to say, 
let there be a debate, let there be democracy, let there be discussion, and then let there be uh, a decision taken. That's the way of things. Well, exactly right. I mean, this uh, situation yesterday where the removal of a statue of Robert Milligan was organised are demanded by one particular councillor at Tower Hamlets called Etasham Hack, who seems to have suddenly taken offence at something that's been there for a couple of hundred years and which Tower Hamlets Council have known about ever since they've been running the Labour-run council since the 1960s, right? Now, my problem with this is, uh, one, who gives him that, that power... Who gives Sadiq Khan the power to say that he's going to target something like 60 possibly other um, uh, statues around London because he doesn't like the look of them? You know, who's to say uh, that Queen Victoria should be daubed a murderer uh, and then removed as one of the great monarchs of this country? I mean, you know, it's not our country anymore if people are saying this. Well, this is the point. I mean, you've got a situation where uh, we absolutely endorse and we 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 relish and we and we we love freedom of speech in this country is one of the things that makes this country absolutely fantastic is the ability to express yourself uh before your citizens uh, as long as you're doing everything lawfully but it's this thing lawful that really really matters um and you know one councillor's view has to surely count for only one councillor's view there has to be a wider democratic uh, support for uh, what his view is. We need to discuss these things. That is not to say that I'm supporting uh, the statues uh, up and down the country. I haven't looked into it. What I do think is, whatever your opinion, there is a process here which is an elected uh, democracy who has to have a discussion about these things. They have to be put to the vote. And the police's job is to uh, support whatever the law is not to take matters into their own hands and interpret the law uh, in the way that they, they wish to. Now, part of the problem here, Mike, of course, is is the national government in Westminster. It, its hands are more than full dealing with the pandemic and making major decisions around things that are hypercritical to lots of us, like, are we going to open our schools uh, and is the health of the nation in decent hands and we're going to have an economy uh, uh, anytime soon, which are really hypercritical. And at the same time, um, because they haven't got the capacity to deal with this, it looks like mob rule is beginning to get on the streets. And I warn people uh, already, there is talk of the far right massing to try and take matters into their own hands. And uh, I, I'm not um, hoping to be uh, you know, hysterical about it, but there is a danger, there's a genuine danger. But if somebody doesn't get on top of this, it's going to look pretty yeah. ugly. Well, if the police don't get to grips with these characters uh, and fi- and finally uh, sort of weed them out, because as I said to somebody yesterday, the Daily Mail did a spread yesterday of all the faces of the people causing much of the trouble on the streets of London last weekend. There's not that many of them. Uh, surely it would be, be relatively easy to identify them, round them up and take them out of the game. Because if the Football Lads Alliance, amongst other groups, decides to show up and protect you know, the monuments of London, it's going to be a very ugly scene indeed. But I surely have to say as well, well, that the government needs to step in in more in more ways than it has so far, doesn't it? I mean, for Pretty Patel to say that what happened in Bristol was a criminal act, but then to do nothing about it, uh, and for and for uh, you know people to say please don't go and demonstrate, it's hardly going to stop them, is it? There's a danger of that. Uh, I think it's important that we are uh, responsible in the way that we talk about these things, and I think that uh, Pretty Patel. 
uh, as you know her and I know her, is somebody whose head is very much screwed on the right way. She Her heart is in the right place, and I think she'll be doing all that she can behind the scenes to ensure that the police forces up and down the country are taking the right action. Of course, the law prevents the Home Secretary or any Prime Minister, for that matter, from actually instructing the police on how they should do their jobs, so it's a fine line she has to tread. But I don't think the police will be in any doubt whatsoever about where Priti Patel stands uh, on an issue like this. But it is important that we don't over-dramatise the situation. You know, let's not pretend that this is happening wildfire across the country. It isn't. But I, I think it's important that where there is an opportunity uh, for the government to show that it is keeping uh, you know, a firm lid on these things, that it is doing so. And as I say, my point is, here today we have Prime Minister's questions in a few hours, the Prime Minister will almost certainly have an opportunity to, to make some comments. And, and we know where his, uh, his view is on this matter. Um, he's incredibly keen to make sure that lawlessness does not happen. But of course, as I say, you know, the government is overstretched right now. Which government wouldn't be? Well, yes, but when you see pictures of police officers running away from protesters, when you see pictures of police officers not dressed in riot gear, uh, purely and simply, I'm assuming, uh, because I've been told this, that the uh, the leaders of the police do not wish to have confrontational policing in London. Well, I think that's wrong. Surely we now have to take that decision to say, look, if you want a mass protest and you want to be violent, then we're going to have to meet you head on with riot police, with riot shields, with batons, uh, with uh, with pepper spray, whatever it takes. There must not be a repeat of what happened last weekend, surely. Well, my view uh, is that I'm I've never seen uh, police running away in, in my entire life. No. And I, I doubt very many people have in this country. And I worry, and I worry about the police themselves. I know that the rank and file uh, officers feel um, very mixed about the way that they've been asked to police these things. Uh, and of course, they are the people in the front line. They are the people we ask to put their lives on the line uh, for our safety and security. And if their leaders are taking a decision, then um, you know it's very important that they are united in these things. Now, of course, the police will say, their view is that by turning up with riot gear and batons and horses, they're going to make a bad situation much, much worse and create potentially, you know, unleash a whole wave of, of, of this kind of protesting up and down the country, i.e. make things worse than they are. And I think it's a very fine line and their judgment has to be just bang on to make sure they continue to control the situation and don't encourage the mob by looking as if uh, the police are an easy target whilst at the same time not exacerbating the situation, which could, as, uh, as the days roll on, peter out if there's no reason for the mob to, to, to carry on. It is a fine judgment. I personally believe uh, in a strong show uh, of police, but I think the police have to be sensitive as well. But the one thing that must be sure, we must be sure about is you cannot put police lives on the line uh, in the, in the, in the you know, pursuit of political correctness. Well, exactly right. And also, we've seen already one police officer ending up in hospital. We had uh, something like uh, 49 injuries, I think, over the course of the weekend. One particular unfortunate woman uh, knocked off a horse because it, it bolted, because somebody threw a bicycle at it. You know, those are the kinds of things that will happen if these marches are not prevented. And I think you're right to say that there needs to be a balance. However, you know, you can't just let these people take over central London every single weekend until they feel like not doing it anymore, can you? You absolutely cannot. And I think where the police are is they're trying to assess whether or not there is a danger of 
uh, these 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 groups, these protests uh, accelerating and growing, or whether they're going to peter out. Now, listen, the weather makes a big difference on these things. Sometimes, weirdly, there's going to be hot weather this weekend, we're told in London, uh, and I would imagine there'll be another reason for people to gather. And I think that this time the police have to show that they have control and grip. But the idea, the view or the pictures are shown around the world of the British police running away I think is a is a very sad day in many respects, and it's a worrying day, and there has to be a way of getting back on top of this. There's another debate as to whether police officers should be um, sort of taking the knee, uh, which I know is uh, splitting the opinion right down the country, and uh, whether or not that's an appropriate act for them to do, or whether that encourages the mob. So it's a very difficult situation, Mike. That's the that's the truth of the yes. matter. And, and it's not, like and it's also and not, not it's not very helpful when you see the leader of the opposition and his deputy Keir Starmer and uh, Angela Rayner taking the knee uh, in a rather bizarre looking setting in a room on their own together. Um, you know, because that effectively gives the message, and I think many Labour MPs have given this message to the protesters that they're doing the right thing. You know, we've heard from various MPs who have said that they're very glad that the statue was drawn uh, taken down in Bristol. Well, sorry, it's an illegal act. It's an act of criminality. And these people are lawmakers, and yet they're endorsing it. And that, I'm afraid, is a really scary uh, capture of the picture of where we are right now. We Mm. have a lot of parliamentarians now who are fresh into the House uh, post-December. The vast majority of them sensible, uh, committed to trying to change the world for the better. But some, I'm afraid, have taken a rather irresponsible view. um, And they are... I think, in danger of uh, whipping up uh, the sort of hysteria that is the very last thing that they should be doing. You are right. These people are lawmakers. They have a duty and a responsibility to act calmly. Uh, And yes, listen, people have the right to feel very strongly about uh, race and other issues. and, And it's right that they do feel strongly. And let's have the debate and let's encourage people to speak out and and air their views. And and let's create um, a democratic will. But let's not encourage people to behave illegally and unlawfully and in a dangerous, threatening manner. This this is a really very dangerous turn of events. Yes. And just finally, George, on the actual coronavirus itself, which everybody now seems to have rather conveniently forgotten as if it's not important anymore. um, It seems to me that this one metre rule is coming closer and closer uh, to fruition, which will help businesses, will help hospitality, uh, will probably help schools as well. Uh, Do you do you see that happening shortly? Well, I know that within government, there's a heated debate about how quickly they can move to one metre. They want to move quickly. Um, very quickly indeed. And what they're concerned about, of course, is taking a decision which encourages a, a return of the of the virus, uh, and then the lockdown has to come back in again. So it's a fine balance again. This is a time, Mike, for great judgment in Downing Street and beyond. Uh, and we only hope that the Prime Minister is well enough and fit enough uh, to to take the helm and, and really lead from the front. But I tell you, there is a point now, I think, where uh, public will is beginning to fray at the edges because particularly mums and dads are beginning to say we need our kids to actually go back to school not just for their own education but for our own sanity and we know that businesses up and down the country need to get back and they need to get trading it's all very well queuing for an hour outside the supermarket because you need the food but are people really going to queue for an hour outside a jeans shop or a clothes shop um the, the idea that they're going to do that i think is fanciful so 
we need to get moving and we need to get moving quickly. And if that means um, challenging the science, then hopefully that's what ministers are doing. Yes, absolutely right. George, thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman now of Portland Communications, with some sensible words about where we are right now in this country, why we are here, and how the hell we got here. Neil Oliver, uh, the producer, as a presenter rather, of Coast, is going to be joining us. He's an historian, he's an archaeologist, he's going to be telling us exactly why history at this very moment in time is so important and why we should not be airbrushing it and changing it and pretending that certain things didn't happen and taking statues down so that people don't talk about things. It's absolutely and utterly wrong, in my view. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Sam Packer, who's from the Taxpayers Alliance, because wouldn't you know it, Sadiq Khan, who's been in the uh, news lately quite a lot and who found himself back on planks of the week list uh, this week as well. Uh, This is a guy who basically uh, wants to pull down a load more statues, wants to remove a load more statues, seems to have appointed himself uh, the Lord High um, sort of Hegion of London. He seems to think that he's not just an elected mayor. He thinks he's the king of London. Well, we got news for him. He's not. But he's got a lot of people working for him who get paid an awful lot of money. Let's find out from Sam exactly what this is all about. Sam, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Now, um, you've revealed today something that I'm very happy that you've done. The City Hall Rich List 2020. Hundreds of transport bosses earning more than £100,000 in pay, bonuses and benefits. No wonder they've got to put the congestion charge up. Yeah, exactly, Mike. So we've had a look and found that 518 people that work for Transport for London are earning over £100,000 a year. And that goes up to... 114 above 150 grand and what's striking is that number is a significant increase from when Sadiq Khan took over at City Hall in 2016 when the number was 459 Mm. and of course we need to remember there's been a 1.6 billion pound taxpayer funded bailout of TfL just a few weeks ago yes and the congestion charge is being risen London's council tax has gone up by over nine percent in the past couple of years you know taxpayers are having to pay and a third of money that TfL gets comes directly from taxpayer grants, and that's on top of the fares everybody pays. So when we hear that there's no money left whatsoever and budgets are incredibly tight in local government or in London's government and all this kind of thing, we just want to remind taxpayers that that's not all their money's going on frontline services. Well, of course it's not. I mean, 654 staff. I mean, when I saw that number, I thought to myself, that's an awful lot of people. But that's not the only number of people that are employed by the Greater London Authority. That's the number of people who receive in excess of £100,000 a year. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, there's Amazing. a lot of people... Yeah, I, I think that a lot of your listeners would agree. You know, we wouldn't say that... No one's worth that amount of money. Of course, they need to make decisions about who needs to be paid what and try and attack the best possible talent. But it's important to get it out there and so that the public are aware of where exactly it's going. And a lot of the public might think that some of these people aren't worth that much. Well, I'm pretty sure that none of them are worth that much because the way that London is run, quite frankly, is an absolute and utter disgrace. They can't seem to run a whelk stand. I mean, they don't know what they're doing with the roads. They don't know what they're doing with the buses. They don't know what they're doing with the trains, the bridges. Uh, you know, it's just a complete and utter mess. But what, what on earth do these people do? 654 people making more than 100,000 a year. I mean, it beggars belief, doesn't it? Yeah, and of course, they do various different things. So 518 are at TFL, but one that you might find interesting is the mayor's own office. Yeah. So people who he directly employed, you know, his political advisors and such. Oh, yeah. It's gone from seven earning over 100,000 four years ago to 16, so more than doubled since right. Sadiq Khan took over. 
That's an incredible number, isn't it? And you've got Metropolitan Police as well involved in this. So 25 people working at the Met are in excess of 100,000. 25 in excess of 150,000. 79 of them in excess of 100,000. And these are the people that are telling the police not to police the streets of London, making sure that they run away when the thugs come near them. Yeah, and I think what we'd, what we'd emphasise as well is this isn't, isn't a story that stands alone. Of course, some people need to be paid a lot of money, but I've come on your show before and we've discussed sort of hilarious examples of waste in London government. So it's not as though, oh, we're paying people loads of money to make sure there's no bad governance. Clearly, there is all sorts of bad governance and waste coming along all the time and taxpayers have to pay for it. Yeah, and also let's not pretend that this figure of 150,000 is the limit, right? Because these are people over 150,000. So if I look at the actual list that you've got, Michael Brown, the Commissioner of Transport for London, I think people will be sickened by the amount of money he makes. £508,000. Half a million a year. Yeah, and of course, we should remember that that includes a few different things. So we've got people earning bonuses, uh, potential benefits, all these sorts of things all roll into these overall figures that we produce. And people might think that performance-related pay at Transport for London is somewhat misplaced in the past year, given the performance. Well, I mean, there's taxi drivers out there who are losing their incomes, losing their livelihoods, unable to work, not just because of the coronavirus shutdown, but because of all of the ridiculous regulations that they've got to jump through the hoops for. And this guy's making half a million a year. Talent and Resources Director at Crossrail. What on earth is that? Have they got any talent at Crossrail? I'll tell you what, £479,000 is what she gets. Yeah, and Mike, I think something that we should really try and remember when we see this is we've heard a lot from local councils in the last day, haven't we, about how public pressure means they're considering certain things. But what they're forgetting is the real public pressure is on the finances and how much everyone has to pay for all this sort of thing. You know, we've done polling and found three quarters of people think council taxes should be frozen. But because people don't scream it from the rooftops, that apparently isn't proper public pressure. The real public pressure in this country and towards councils is they shouldn't be wasting all this money and charging us all for the benefit of it, especially in tough times when coronavirus means that people are facing financial constraints. This is this is really uh, what should be being addressed by councils, and that includes London and London local government. I'm quite staggered by it. I'm quite sickened by it. I'm, I'm actually, I think I want to tear this up. I'm so, I'm so horrified by this, right? It's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, 500,000 quid to run bloody transport for London. Are you having a laugh? Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to have to let you go, Sam, before I have some kind of coronary, because this is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'll tell you what, let's talk to somebody sensible. Glyn is in Nottingham. Hi, Glyn. Hello there, Mike. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm very well. Well, I was all right until I found out the head of transport for London gets half a million quid a year. That's obscene, isn't it? It's incredible. I mean, it's like, talk about a gravy train. (laughs) Not half. But anyway, I was phoning you up about these statues and whatnot. I yeah. just wonder where it's going to end, because it is, they're giving in to the bully. Yeah. And appeasement never, ever works. It's like the bully in the school ground. If you give him your pocket money one day, yeah. will he not ask you for it again? Of course he will. And this you is know, exactly my point. You know, if we allow the police to let this happen and they do nothing about it, the people who are doing it will go, I'll tell you what, let's go. I mean, I was certain that on Sunday the Churchill statue was going to be torn down. And well, I would I would guarantee that they're going to try and do that. Oh, well, almost certainly. Um, and the problem is you've got people like Keir Starmer and, and the s- s- deputy leader and whatnot. Yeah, Angela Rayner. Yeah. Do you know 
just pant, you know, going down on one knee. There's only three times you should go down on one knee. Yeah. Proposing yeah. in church and if united. I've done the first two. The third one's never going to come my way. <laughs> That's very true. Absolutely yeah. right. Listen, Glenn, great call. Thank you very much indeed. There's no doubt uh, that we are having the mickey taken out of us at 100 miles an hour by these radicals by these anarchists who seem to have somehow inveigled their way uh, into the councils of this country into the universities of this country into the schools of this country into parliament they're everywhere these people these lefties who nobody wants in charge of anything at all i mean if you need any more confirmation that the public sector is out of control and crazy what we've just talked about transport for london the head of that getting more than half a million pounds a year this is absolute nonsense they couldn't run, as I said earlier, a Welch stand. They couldn't run anything at all resembling a proper business. And yet they're making more money than Croesus. Unbelievable. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we had Neil Oliver on the a show just a, a little while ago, probably a week, a week and a half ago or so, to come on. He was on our homeschooling section uh, where he talks about the great wealth of, of wonder, wonder around Britain and how the coastline of Britain is such a wonderful place. But we've been talking a little bit since then, uh, and he's got a lot to say about education, about history, uh, and about the world uh, that we are now changing 
uh, into. Neil, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks so, for having yeah, me. No, listen, thank you so much for, for being here because we are, I think, in, in uh, never before have we been in such need of some voices of, of common sense. And, and I believe you to be one of those because what we're seeing at the moment, Neil, is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I, I certainly think it is. Uh, I, I certainly don't think that um, uh, selectively editing the past uh, is, is any way to, uh, you know, leading to any kind of productive and, and, and happy future. Mm. Uh, I certainly take a position where we need more, more history, more clues to history, uh, more pages from the story, if possible. Uh, I, I say that you add to history, you don't subtract from it uh, when you run across characters whose morals you don't approve of mm. uh, and you take them out of the context in which they lived uh, I, th that is the that's the early steps i find it very concerning that that the, this kind of uh, this kind of behavior is, is a step on the road that leads to the you know to, to mob rule yep. to the tumbrils to the guillotine uh, who are these self-appointed people who believe that uh, they're able to make these value judgments well they exactly stand, right they stand in judgment and i think that's a very dangerous precedent who who among us uh, you know has the kind of moral purity, moral certainty to be able to make those judgments. That's why we have a process. Uh, that's why if, if people think that there should be changes to their built landscape, you know, there's a, there's a process for making that happen, which is legal. Uh, and if you cannot have a system that guarantees process for the worst of us, then it, it certainly won't protect the best of us. Exactly. Um, we need to understand more, uh, not selectively edit. So I find it uh, very troubling, very worrisome. I watched... I watched the film. I watched the film of um, uh, the statue, the questionable statue being taken down. Edward, Edward Colston, yeah. And I thought it was incredibly ironic, because it was almost certainly I was able to watch it because it was being filmed on on mobile phones, mm. and we know pretty certainly that you know so many of those smartphones are assembled by modern day slaves, yeah. Uh, and people were wearing clothes from sweatshops, which they know are being put together by modern-day slaves. Yes. Uh, and there's a terrible irony in filming and, and celebrating the end of the statue of a, of, a, of, a, of a slaver from the 17th century in that way. And I, I watched the footage. I watched the footage, and I was so troubled and astonished by it. You know, we're modern 21st-century people, uh, and the, the, the statue came down, and people were slapping it with their bare hands. Mm. And as it was being rolled through the streets, the, the, someone had tied a rope around the legs, uh, as though it really was the person. Yes. And then it was it was ceremonially uh, dumped into the into the harbour, as though to drown him. Mm. You know, Edward Colston uh, lived and died 300 years ago. You know, he died aged 84, tucked up warm in his bed, as, yeah. as far as I understand it. Um, After having yeah, committed yeah, many, many philanthropic acts, and including setting up hospitals, setting up schools for, for, well, for the poor? Whether, there's a process. If people, if people do decide that they want to, to, to get rid of statues, if they want to get rid of anything, then there's a democratic process which is there to protect all of us at all times. Uh, and we must not, cannot uh, go to the point where uh, self-appointed mobs are making decisions and acting upon them. You know, it's all very harmless and good fun now when it's a bronze statue. Yeah. These are these are baby steps on a road that leads to catastrophic places. Well, do you know, Kristallnacht was not far from my thoughts when I was watching that, because one thing I hate is a mob in any event. The second thing I hate uh, is the police standing by and letting it happen. 
And, you know, as I've said to many people since that, that moment, since that statue was torn down, you know, what if they come to you next? They come to your house and they decide that you're some kind of horrible racist and they drag you out of your house and they throw you in the harbour? Because that's, I think, what we're all talking about here. Yes, I think, I mean, enough, enough is enough. Uh, I think what has happened so far is, is too much. Um, you know, that, that, that process by which people are encouraged to think that they can be denouncing in this instance, people from the past, but that's baby steps on a road that, that, that leads to people being encouraged to think that they can denounce family members, their neighbours. Uh, you know, and that's what, you know, that's what happened in Mao Zedong's China in the, in the Cultural Revolution. You know, 30-odd million people were hounded in that way. Uh, you know, ultimately, 100 million people died in Mao's China. Yeah. Uh, and yet people, people feel happy and proud to wear T-shirts with Mao's face on them, mm. even today. Yeah. Uh, che Guevara... You know, the iconic poster boy of, of communism. Yeah. You know, read the motorcycle diaries and see what he had to say about people of colour. Mm. Uh, you know, if you, want to, if you want to question people's position on race, you know, look at Che. And yet people feel delighted to wear a T-shirt or have a poster on their, on their, on their bedroom wall of, of Che. Yeah. Um, it's extraordinary. And, the, and the, architect, the architect of that whole system, you know, the whole system of, of communism, socialism, that... The, as far as we know, killed in excess of 100 million people in the 20th century alone. Mm. You know, the architects of that were Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Read their correspondence, read their books, see what they had to say about people of colour mm. and other races. Yeah. And in any event, the gulag system in Russia that led to the deaths of, well, who knows, 50 million people, we don't really know, we probably never will, that was slavery. That was because it was understood pretty early on that the communist system would only work if it had forced labour, yeah. which is another word for slaves. You know, and yet people still... There's no talk I'm, I'm seeing of people taking down statues of Karl Marx or Friedrich Engels. And I'm not saying there should be. I'm not advocating, I'm not advocating the removal of anyone's statue. Mm. Because once you start... You know, he who controls the past controls the future. Well, and I listen to, to understand the the most that we possibly can. Why are the cannons? Why are the guns being turned on individuals and and and, and the history of this country? Mm. You know, I would like people to point at another country in the world where as many people have as much of a chance of a good life as they have here. Mm. And, an and, for, and, and people, we know this, but and, and people continue to flock here, Neil, from all sorts of corners of the world because they believe Britain to be a fair country, a place where they do have a chance to succeed, regardless of their background, regardless of their religion, regardless of the colour of their skin. And you're absolutely right. But how much of this do you think is kind of pandered to? by the, uh, the, the left. And I have to say the left in this country because that's what it is. We've got Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner taking the knee. You know, we've got uh, Labour MPs literally encouraging people to tear down statues. Sadiq Khan setting up, uh, uh, you know, a commission to, to nominate 60 statues that should be removed. We've got people like Lewis Hamilton talking about removing all uh, evidence of any kind of racial discrimination uh, in terms of monuments to anything in the world now, not just in Britain. And I mean, how much also is this down to the education process? of some of these people who are now in their 20s who believe Britain to have once been an evil place? Well, we need, again, we need more history. We need, we need more understanding of history. You don't do away with history because you're embarrassed by it or ashamed of it. Mm. People have the right to criticise in this country. You know, we're able to, to stand up and say what we think or we, or we are at the moment. And that is something that is to be cherished above all other prizes. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a gem. It's not a gem. A gem is hard. It's, it's fragile like a flower. Mm. 
you know, you seize the flower, the bloom is dead. You can't, uh, you can't risk moving into a situation where people aren't allowed to criticise. This criticism that is going on at the moment is the product of a free country, and we arrived at this destination at the end of a long and bloody road. Yeah. We've been through terrible times nationally. You know, we've been, we've been dreadful to each other, to our neighbours. We've also been spectacularly good at other times to each other, to our neighbours. But it's been a, a long and checkered story, and you don't get to edit it. I do wonder at the, at the history education that's being made available. I mean, I would, at the moment, as far as it stands, I would, if someone was saying to me about going to university to study history, I would say you'd be better off getting a job and spending the money buying books. Yes. And educate, you can get as good an education in the subject of history from a good bookshop, but you should get to the bookshops fast because this, this process by where certain things are being edited out, mm. you know, the, a, a next step, another baby step along that dangerous road is the burning of books. Yes. I mean, you mentioned that certain comedy shows and films are being taken down. Uh, you well, know, imagine, I mean, imagine removing Gone with the Wind, one of the greatest movies ever made and a great study of what happened in the Civil War in America. And now they're saying we shouldn't watch it. Well, anything, you don't, it's so, it's so dangerous to be, to be advocating a situation where uh, certain things are taken away you know, you keep, you're better off keeping your dirty linen out mm. where people can see it. Yeah. You know, if, you, know the, you might say that these, these statues of people who, uh, who were slavers and, and involved in the slave trade, they're, they're there to be seen. They're being named and shamed. Mm. They're, being, they're, they're there for everyone to see. And what would be much more effective, I would have thought, is rather than subtracting and taking them away, you add to it. You add to the context. Yeah. You know, maybe you put up other statuary there or in other places that tell the, the rest of the story. Yes. You tell, also, you tell the rest of the story. You don't, do, you don't edit out characters because, because what they did was shameful. Right. You remember the shame. And also, as I was saying to an earlier guest, the, the Robert Milligan statue, uh, which I've never actually seen uh, in, uh, in East India Quay, uh, he was a very significant figure. That was the word that we used in that segment of the show. And yes, he may have been a, a ghastly individual who uh, uh, traded slaves and owned slaves, I think, at the time that he died. But he was a significant figure. And part of the whole statuary thing is that back in those days when we put statues up to people, they made statues of, of people they regarded as significant. And therefore, that's an interesting thing in itself. Isn't it? It's important to know. It's 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 relevant and valid to see the way people thought in the past. Yeah, and to see how far we have come. But you don't knock down the milestones along that long road in the belief that you're furthering anybody's uh, education. Right. You, you you have to. These people have to be visible. These these embarrassing, shameful, you know, horrifying parts of the story have to be there so that people can see them. And you augment, you add, you don't subtract. You don't subtract from history, you add to it. It seems extraordinary that we've got in Leeds yesterday people writing murderer uh, and painting and daubing paint over a statue of Queen Victoria. Uh, we've got Liverpool students asking for uh, a Gladstone uh, residence hall to be renamed. I mean, Gladstone is not exactly one of those people that you would put up, even if you were to do it, as some kind of evil, you know, personified of, of his time. Well, I, I, it, with my hand on my heart, I would say that the, the debate about whether statues should or shouldn't be left standing, that, that, that is, in a democratic 
country. That is a that is of course a conversation mm. that's there to be had. And if if there is, I mean, I, w- I would say in the context of statuary in the nation's capital, which is London, uh, it, it might be something not just for the people of London to debate yes. and to decide. It might be it might be something that requires a national conversation from from far away Orkney to the to the Channel Islands. Yeah, because it's our, it's our nation's capital, isn't it? You might have to you might have to debate that. And I wouldn't stand in the way of a, of a, of a majority decision that said we must have a conversation about yes. this. Yes. But that you see, this is one of the things Colstead. that was said about Edward Colston, because the people who pulled the statue down said, but we've been having conversations about this for a long time and nothing's happened. Well, the reason for that is because people could not agree on its removal. The majority of people in Bristol did not want its removal. So the fact that a small minority of people did and have now suddenly taken to, 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 to taking the law into their own hands, that's not a justification. No. And it's, it's so dangerous. The idea, I mean, it's, people, people are looking on. You know, this, this specific example of, of Edward Coulson and his story, and people are saying, well, because of who he was and what he did, we think it's right. And, and MPs and journalists are standing by and mm. cheering on. Including the what, police as well, by the way. What, what happened there. Um, but that's not, that's not the way that these decisions ought to be taken. It, it's one thing if you, if, you, if you think that it's happening to the right person today. Well, tomorrow it might be happening to your neighbour or your friend. And the day after that, it might be happening to you. And if you have previously stood by and said, well, under certain circumstances, the mob are entitled to take their own decisions and act on it, then your cries for mercy are, are, going to, are, more, are more likely to fall on deaf ears if you have previously been part of the chorus of people saying that at certain times the mob can take the law into its own hands. Yes, well, I mean, you're basically saying they can... To, everything has to be a result of due process. We've, we've arrived after hundreds of bloody and difficult years at a system that's almost unique in the world. The fact that we have a civilization that, that we are able to criticize and insist on change, that's not, neat. That's not natural. No. The na- natural is a damned mess. Well, it's, it's... around at the world where... Why, why aren't they turning their guns on where modern-day slavery mm. is, is there? Right. You know, living among us. Which is far easier to do because they can simply boycott things, which is what they also quite like to do at times when it suits them. They could easily boycott the manufacturers of those clothes, boycott the manufacturers of those phones. But uh, it takes you back to that Martin Niemöller quote, doesn't it, where, where he ends up saying, then they came for me and there was nobody left. Well, exactly. I mean, it's a danger. It's a game called feeding the crocodile. Yeah. You keep feeding the crocodile in the belief that as long as you keep doing that, you'll be eaten last. Mm. But eventually you run out of food. Yeah, right. And the crocodile is never sated. And eventually the crocodile comes for you. So you can't, you can't allow it. You can't, we don't have lynching. You know, you, you don't have public lynching. Even, even in, in a situation where maybe a large body of people would say, well, that person deserved it. But that's not how we do things. We have, we have due process. And we have agreed upon the process democratically. That has been our tradition. And one of the traditions that, that has been upheld so successfully in our part of the world, if only relatively recently in historical terms, is the, is the absolute right of the individual. Every individual must be protected. Every individual must be protected and must go through due process, habeas mm. corpus and all the rest of it. We've, we've, we've written for hundreds of years into law the fact that individual rights must be protected. And we have a process for making decisions, taking decisions, 
and going ahead with, with revolutionary action if we want to. But yes. we, de- we decide that as a population, as a people. But what we seem to have lost, Neil, as well, is the ability to delineate between sort of anarchism, which is what tends for me to be leading these movements, right? The movements that are marching through the streets, the people who want to destroy capitalism, that want to tear down statues, and, and sort of general what you might regard as mainstream politics, because the mainstream politics are seemingly siding with the anarchists without realising where that takes them. Yes. Yes, there's a, there's a dangerous, there's a turning of a blind eye and a deaf ear mm. at the moment, mm. presumably because people think, well, this one doesn't matter. Well, because they think they look good. It's this virtue signalling thing. I'm looking at a great tweet here from Tom Holland. 2006, a proposal was put forward to rename all streets and buildings in Liverpool linked to the slave trade. The plans were dropped only when it became clear that scrapping Penny Lane might damage the tourism industry. How ironic well, is that? One of the great... One of the great uh, authors of the of the twenty maybe the greatest author of the twentieth century is is Alexander Solzhenitsyn mm. who who was a who went through the gulag system in Russia he was a Russian soldier he was he was con, he was convicted of of whatever and sent into the into the gulag system and he was there for years and when he came out he wrote the Gulag Archipelago which arguably is the single text that brought down the Soviet Union yeah you know it was a, literally a world changing document and he was a you know a Nobel Prize winning author and it, it's an eighteen hundred page long roar yeah. scream of 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 pain it's an extraordinary piece of work yeah. and the the distillation from it is that the 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 line separating good and evil doesn't pass through any state any political party or any class it runs through every human heart now that's a that is a vitally crushingly important point that everyone has to remember mm. if you think you as an individual have the right to stand in judgment then you're a very dangerous person yes because in in the heart of every single one of us is the concentration camp guard is the torturer is the murderer that that monster is there inside each and every one of us mm. and if you're not aware of that truth if you can't uh, if you can't accept that truth about the human condition, then you are a very, very dangerous creature indeed. But it's because enough individuals in our part of the world have accepted that reality that we don't allow the mob to do what it sometimes wants to do. Mm. Because we know that the monsters are not other people. The monsters are us, each and every one of us. You know, that line between good and evil passes through our hearts. Mm. And that's why we have evolved a system after centuries of agony where there is a process and we don't hide things and pe- things aren't, dirty linen isn't kept out of sight where possible. Things are brought out and discussed and we consider what people have done and collectively we make decisions about what should happen next. But well, somebody that- needs to get a grip of this and I don't know who that person would be. I'd like to think it should be the Prime Minister. Somebody needs to get a grip of it. Enough is enough. This, you know, this is this has gone, this has gone far enough. Yeah, yeah, it's dreadful. Listen, Neil, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Very thoughtful, uh, very thought-provoking as well. Um, I think Neil Oliver speaks for the commonsensical people of this country. Not only that, he's an expert in history. He's a man that knows his history. He knows that history cannot be rewritten, cannot be reinvented, cannot be airbrushed, and should never be. It's as simple as that. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Right now, it's time for our homeschooling section, which is what we do, of course, at 12.30 every single day after the news. Today, we're going to talk to Chris Walters, who's a music education official with the Musicians Union, because we're going to talk about uh, reading music, basically, sight reading, I think, as we used to call it when I did it uh, as a kid. But it looks a lot different now uh, than it used to. Chris, a very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you. I know I'm going to tell you something which not very many people know about me. Is that when I was a kid, I used to study the violin. And so I used to take the old Royal Academy um, exams and I used to turn up down by the Royal mm. Albert Hall and I did uh, theory and I also did uh, practicals, you know. And I got up to grade five by the age of about 12 and then I chucked it in because I got a Saturday job. Um, but in those days, mm. I never saw anything like um, what I'm looking at now, uh, which is a kind of weird looking <laughs> clock type face with loads and loads of different <laughs> signs on it, uh, some of which I recognise, some of which I don't. Have they changed the way you, you teach music now? They haven't changed it. Um, what we're talking about today is something that's a bit sort of high level. It's called the Circle of Fifths. And um, uh, it, I have to say, it's, it's been a long while since I've been asked to talk about it. And I was having a chat with your producer and I asked, why are we talking about the Circle of Fifths? It turns out that uh, it was the bane of her GCSE music and it made, unfortunately <laughs> made a drop of it. She's clearly scarred um, by the so experience. She yeah. To, yeah, she's scarred and she wondered if um, it would be possible to just sort of lance the boil you know once and for all so yes. i'm gonna have a go for you all right so yeah. i mean because what, what um, i was what i was used to seeing was say you know a treble clef uh, a bunch of notes you know crotchets and quavers and all of that um and and, and easy to read uh, instructions this appears to be more of a grid system almost tell us about it yeah it, it is it's a grid it's basically um and if anyone wants to look at this for themselves uh it, it, it's called the circle of fifths and we're just looking at the page from wikipedia yeah. so if you're keen on music theory you can look at that later um but it, this isn't notation the most musical notation is like notes written down to help you play a particular piece of music this is more of a like diagram of music theory okay. which is intended to explain how all the different musical keys relate to each other and how the different musical pitches relate to each other. It's a bit like the Pythagoras theorem of music. Uh -huh. um, okay. I know you did Pythagoras on the plot a, a couple did. of days ago. Yes. But yeah, it's that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I think it's better to approach it by way of something a little bit more basic, if that's all right. Sure. So you talked about your, your violin playing. I mean, you, you probably remember practicing your scales. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, I wondered if we could just talk about a basic music scale first. So yes. people might remember um, from the film, The Sound of Music, the song, Do a Deer, A Female Deer. It's probably mm. the most famous representation of a scale. Yeah. Uh, and in that song, uh, the scale goes, I'm going to risk singing it. It goes, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do. So I was going to ask you, how many notes do you think there are in, in that musical scale? Well, I'm thinking there's eight notes in it because that would be an octave, wouldn't it? Yeah, there are eight notes in it, um, but the bottom note and the top note are actually the same. Ah. Um, so the, the bottom do and the top do are the same note, but just at a different pitch. Right. Um, so in a basic musical scale, we've got seven notes that sort of repeat. If I was going to carry on singing that up, I'd sing the same notes again up. And it's also the same on a piano keyboard. You could just keep playing up with the same basic seven notes. And a lot of pieces of music that we know especially the more simple tunes, just use those seven notes. Right. Um, so things like the National Anthem is an example of that. And then if you think about a piano keyboard, 
those seven notes are the white ones. And then you've also got some black notes in there as well. Mm. And they're sort of like the half steps between some of those notes. Yes. And they give you a little more sort of different colours and, and more complicated pieces of music might use those notes. Right. Um, and, and those are like the flats, the flats of the shops, aren't the they? The flats of the shops. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in a um, in a in one octave, as you called it, um, you've got seven uh, white notes and five black notes. Yeah. So that makes a total of twelve musical notes. And in fact, um, all of music, or the vast majority of music, just comes from those twelve notes, mm. all in different combinations, different orders. Yes. And it's kind of amazing to think. Uh, that all of music just comes from 12 different notes. Yeah, and would you always um, suggest that an octave begins with C, or could it be another another note that it could start with? Well, that sort of brings us onto the circle of fifths, actually. Yeah. Um, because every one of those 12 notes has its own musical key. Okay. And that is what the circle of fifths is trying to sort of, is a map of all the different keys. Now, the, the one that starts on C... If you're playing it on the piano, that just uses the white notes, but all of the others use the black notes in different amounts. Right. And the circle of fifths tells you which ones are most related to each other. So um, at the top of that diagram, we've got C major, yeah. and that's got no black notes in it at all. Right. And if you move either side of that, you've got G major and F major, and then they both use one black note. And then if you move around again, you've got keys that use two. So it's like a map of understanding which notes are in which keys. If that oh, okay. Sense. And so, I mean, as far as creating music is concerned, um, is the what does the fifth actually represent when you say it's a circle of fifths? What is a fifth? Yes. Um, well, if you go around that circle, all of the notes in the order that are presented on that circle are a fifth apart. And that just means five notes. So okay. if you go back to the do, re, mi, you've got... Do, re, mi, fa, so, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. So a fifth is, da, da. And that interval of a fifth is a special relationship in music because keys that are a fifth apart are the closest related. Mm. So on the circle of fifths, you've got C major and G major. They're a fifth apart and they're only different by, by one note. You mm. add in an F sharp to get G major. Right. So, so if you're a composer, you can move your key a fifth in either direction and it's going to be quite similar to what you're using now right. but if you move by a different amount of notes you're in a distant key where there are lots of different notes and it might be more difficult to modulate your music into that key yes. so quite a complicated concept but it uh, is. it's kind of like the rules of physics of music in a way <laughs> yes it is and i see that around the bottom sort of half of the of the of the circle you've got different sort of um uh, sharps and, and flats marked out and and different sort of um uh, pieces of of what you might why might have in the old days called sheet music where um you presumably yeah. would be able to mark the time that it's in you know whatever the tempo is yeah that's right i mean when you see those those five lines uh together um on this diagram that is called the musical stave and if you're reading a piece of music, not looking like at a, at a technical diagram like this, but in, a, in an actual piece of music, those staves run on for lines and lines. And that gives you all the information that you need to read the music that you're playing. So at the front there, the clef, so it's a treble clef is the one on that diagram. And that tells you that you're playing in a higher register. 
Um, you can have bar lines and that helps you understand the rhythm of the music. Mm. And then the actual individual note heads will be higher or lower on the stave, depending on whether you want a higher note or a lower note. So that's what musical notation is. It's like all the information that you need to play a piece of music or right. put into that. And there's no bass clef on this yeah. particular circle. Does that mean that there are other circles as well, which look slightly different? Yeah, you could you could make a circle with a bass clef. Um, for the purposes of this, it doesn't like make that much difference. But yeah, it would apply to all the different musical clefs. Right. But you know, if I could just say one thing about this is that um, you know it's, it's interesting to talk about advanced musical theory. But if you're looking to get into music, uh, you don't need to start off by studying. The circle of fifths. You really don't. Right. Um, yeah, you, you just need to just get one of those. Uh, you just need to get one of those electric organs that uh, composes music on your behalf, <laughs> and then you can just add to it, right? Yeah, exactly. You've composed your own music just easy that way, yeah. or or just just to enjoy music by playing it on an instrument that you enjoy, yes, and in the style of music that you enjoy. I mean, there's loads of some of the best musicians in history um, would never have read musical notation and understood the circle of fifths in this way that we're talking about mm. now. I mean, if you listen to their music, you can hear it underneath and they understand it on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, but they might not have approached music in this way, you know? No. So there's different ways to skin a cup of music. Oh, absolutely right. Well, listen, it's been a fascinating conversation. It's taken me back a bit as well. So who knows? I might go back onto the old garage band this afternoon and see if I can come up with uh, some kind of composition. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Walters, music education official uh, with the Musicians Union. I've never seen a more complicated uh, visual when it comes to uh, making music. But have a look at it. Uh, we'll put it or tweet it out uh, and you can see what it actually looks like as well, because it's quite a fascinating uh, and very complicated looking diagram. But as we just heard from Chris, you don't need to look at that in order to create music and if you do have a laptop if you do have uh, anything that's made by apple you will have garage band where you can actually create your own music and it's actually quite satisfying talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.